Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. Today is October 2nd, 2022, and it's 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. This is episode number seven, and my name is Tim Inneking. Today we'll discuss three topics, one which will be much more extensively addressed than the others, and, and that is our inevitable theme, and I didn't start out this podcast with, podcast with this uh, idea, this concept as a theme, but it's certainly turning into one because there's so much of it, and that is bad news is good news. Uh, and that's the first point. So first I'm gonna point out or, or list four bits of bad news that have turned into very good news if you're looking at markets, basically any kind of market, whether it be fiat or crypto. The first came out yesterday and was the beginning of this two-day bull run we see from the ISM, which stands for the Institute for Supply Management, which keeps track of expectations for, for supplies. And like a lot of these scales, it runs theoretically from zero to 100, but it's virtually never below 40 and rarely above 70. Anything above 50 indicates expansion. 50 or below, obviously, or less than 50 indicates contraction. And 50 is, I guess the technical term would be same o same o. And the, the, the ISM statistics for uh, the last period dropped 1.9 points to 50.9. So what that means is supply chain managers do not expect, by and large, any expansion in the near future. And it's absolutely huge because these are the folks who, though they don't, they're sort of the unsung heroes of the supply chain crisis. If they don't expect a lot of growth, they really have their finger on the pulse of the economy. And the reason is they have to look ahead. Uh, I spoke in a totally different context in terms of a direct uh, venture capital investment. I spoke with a gentleman who, for this piece of software we're looking at, who managed, who manufactured the hardware. And we were talking about whether he found, he thought the project was good. And his response to me was, of course the project is good. I had to order hardware for this six months ago. And then I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, we have pieces that go into this unit, happen to be a desktop communications unit, and we've already made our commitment and we've put a lot of money, literally millions of dollars, behind this piece of software. Well, I was doing a due diligence on this project and that was a very, a very important data point to have. And I realized, although theoretically I knew this, it really brought home the fact that folks who are responsible for supply chain, they have to look every day, every day in their job, they way in the future. They really don't care about what's happening today because that's the work that they did six months ago. They are very, very much forward looking. And so when the supply chain managers and when their assessment drops to basically 50, that means they're not expecting any expansion. So what that means is the economy is really settling strongly back. Second point under bad news and good news is job openings. It's today's news. It fell to 10.1 million, and this is the number of open jobs in the United States, which is a one-year low. Interestingly, most economists, the average of most economists, was far larger than that, 10% higher than that at 10.1 or 10.2 million, depending on, on where you look. So a huge drop, 10% is just a mammoth miss, if you will, 
In July, to put it in perspective, there were two jobs available for every unemployed person, which honestly is, is uh, uh, in a way a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. As of today, it's 1.7 jobs for every unemployed person. So that, and which is a, a very significant difference. It's a 15% drop in the, in the number of jobs per unemployed person within uh, two months. So a very big move. And this is particularly important. It's probably more important than the ISM news, even though the ISM news is, is, is important because this number is one that the Fed pays a lot of attention to. And it's interesting why, because the, the Fed's hope that it's going to be able to bring down inflation without causing a recession hangs on a very thin thread. And that thread is unemployment. If unemployment goes up significantly or even up at all, the United States will probably go into recession. Very, it virtually has never happened in the history of the country where unemployment increases significantly wherever it started from and the economy has not gone into recession. The hope that the Fed has is that rather than increasing the number of people out of work, the steps that the Fed has taken to increase interest rates will reduce the number of jobs that are available and not filled. So you'll, so the, the actual avail, the number of available positions will contract rather than the number of filled positions contracting. Still pretty much hanging on a thread, but it was something I really hadn't heard of before. And the reason is, and I think I mentioned this in one of the first podcasts, the very first podcast, is because we've never had, literally, the United States has never had a recession where unemployment was so low. And the Fed has never had to crank up interest rates so high when unemployment was so low. And the reason is, obviously, this is the lowest unemployment that the U.S. has had in, in at least the uh, history where unemployment rates or unemployment statistics were kept. And so if this works, this is fabulous because the Fed will be able to say, see, we dropped the number of unfilled jobs, but we did not decrease the number of filled jobs. In other words, we did not increase unemployment. Less well known, but it also happened sort of today because the time zone's a bit different, probably yesterday in some places. The Royal Bank of Australia so it's 15 hours ahead of us here, 12 hours, sorry, 16 hours ahead of us here, uh, 13 ahead of, of the East Coast, increased interest rates. Big deal, another bank increased interest rates. But RBA increased interest rates, the, essentially the Fed rate for Australia, by 25 basis points. Everyone expected a 50 basis point increase. And so, pardon me, and so here what you have is the first uh, major bank and, and Australia plays an outside role because it's the first to wake up in the morning. It's the, it's the lead. It's, it, it's uh, you know, breaking trail, if you will. The fact that RBA only increased interest rates by 25%, it's really the first significant bank that has reduced the pace of increases. Lastly, and also today, this time back in the United States, Amazon announced that it was slowing hiring. Now, this is, you know, big deal. Amazon's a big company, but so what? One company slows hiring. Amazon has grown employment every quarter for something like the last 22 years. It is a juggernaut that just does not stop. Well, guess what? For the first time in its history, it's stopping. It's not hiring any, uh, at least not no senior positions until the end of the year. It's only a three-month slowdown. It's not a big deal or a three-month hiring freeze. 
but it's symbolically extremely important and it dovetails with the other employment information I just related in a very, very uh, consistent way. Those four bits of news all came out in the last two days. So what happens? This, this is all bad news, right? Except maybe the RBA increases less. But the other three, job openings um, fall by a million. That means there are a million fewer uh, uh, openings there for people to, to fill. Employees, or sorry, employers are reducing the number of openings. The ISM, purchasing managers do not see the, a, a strong future for, uh, immediate future for, to meet their needs. And then the Amazon news. So what happens with all this bad news comes across? Of course, you have the best two days on the stock market since the post-COVID rebound. It's been two and a half years since the Dow Jones, which is normally a horrible indicator, but in this case, I'll use it anyway because it's also correlated, is up over a thousand, well over a thousand points in two days. So a real classic indicator of bad news being good news. And if, for instance, there had been any really substantive news, uh, say Apple had not decided to freeze the number of, of iPhones it's going to make in India, or something like that. If some any company had come up with a big bit of good news, that would have been bad news because it would have indicated that the economy is not slowing down and the Fed would have to continue tightening inflation. So, so there's a logic there. It's fascinating in a lot of ways, frustrating in a lot of other ways. Bad economic news make, makes Wall Street pop. And of course, the reason is, is that, that it, it frustrates a lot of people is if you're on Main Street and you're looking for a job and the number of jobs that are open that you can look for falls by 10%, that makes your life harder, not easier. And Wall Street goes nuts. Uh, that inconsistency, there's a reason for it, but it's still a bit hard to accept. The, the conclusion of this, this little part and the remaining two subjects are much shorter is last week I said I didn't, I didn't call label it out on going out on a limb, which I usually do, was that I thought that Fed hike was the beginning of the end of QT. So the beginning of the end of quantitative tightening. And I think it's a little early to claim to, to claim victory, but I've put a true uh, in the in the records I'm keeping with a with a question mark next to it. We'll see. It may it may well uh, come true, but it's too early to tell to tell yet. And if so, my scorecard will move up to 60% being right in terms of going out on a limb. But as I say, it's too early to tell. The second point is generally about volatility. If you, you look at the markets, I mean, even intraday, much less day-to-day, up 2% one day, down 3% one day. The day there was a Fed announcement, there were four massive swings of almost 3%. It's absolutely crazy. But if you're used to trading crypto, and I've been doing that for now nine years, it looks very familiar. And so my second point is just a simple observation. Fiat volatility, especially when it's undecided like now, really starts to look and trade like crypto. And it's actually come in handy, as, as I mentioned, I've got a foot in the fiat camp because I run a family office, the trustees of which don't like to do any crypto, so we don't do any. And it's still fairly big. It's a good-sized nine-digit family office. And we end up doing some trading there. We don't do a lot. But the skills I've learned over the years in crypto are now 
applying with remarkable, with remarkably little change, I think is the best way of putting it, to the fiat space. And it's really quite, it's really quite amazing. It's really quite surprising. The percentages are still bigger in crypto, but it used to be BTC or Bitcoin could do a 10, 12% move in 24 hours. You rarely see that now for the reasons we've talked about before with Enneking's Law and the, the profile of the average, uh, the average crypto investor. So you have a lot more institutions and it's dampened down volatility, volatility significantly. At the same time, you have volatility in the fiat space and the TradFi space, classic finance space, increasing very significantly. And it, would co it comes as no surprise, therefore, when the levels of volatility start to meet. And overall, and maybe we'll talk about this in a future po podcast, there are a lot of aspects now where fiat is, is influencing crypto, and that's been going on since the beginning, and that should come as no surprise. But there are more and more where crypto is starting to influence fiat, for better or for worse. In this case, they're converging. We'll see how long it lasts, but for now, anyway, the differences between the two in terms of raw volatility are much less. The third and last point is something ex exclusively related to crypto, and I wanted to bring this up a couple of times, but there are just so many other current events, so I can squeeze it in now. And that is the ETH merge. Uh, the, as many of you know, ETH or Ethereum was uh, based on a proof of work model where miners, quote unquote, did work and solved problems and provided services to make the network function to earn Ethereum. And about three and a half years ago now, Vitalik, the gentleman who uh, founded Ethereum with a couple of other partners, but he's clearly the main one, said, okay, we're going to move to proof of stake. And everybody is shocked because proof of stake is just how many you hold on to. And if you hold on to a bunch of them and actually do a little bit of work as well to make the network run, you will earn more ETH. They call them validators. You can call them nodes. You can call them whatever you want to. But the, the, the energy consumption drops by about 99.5% because the work required to make the network function compared to the work required to solve problems and quote mine unquote Ethereum is almost incomparable. So the merge with a delay of about a year and a half had several test phases and it, it took place over time. But when the merge finally took place last month, it was fabulous. It was just amazing. It was a, a technological tour de force. It's, it's rare that any organization, especially the centralized organization, has been able to coordinate something that went as smoothly, so smoothly, the vast majority of people didn't even know what had taken place. And suddenly people aren't earning Ethereum based on proof of work. They're doing it on proof of stake. But there's an interesting aspect to proof of stake that I wanted to address because there's been a little bit of press on it, but not a lot. And that is two related problems. One is the rich get richer. Uh, and when I really thought it, when I really thought, started thinking about proof of stake, I thought about the, the analogs to, in the, the TradFi, the traditional finance community. And I realized to some extent, proof of stake is a bank. If you have a large stake, you are a bank and you lend your money out to people and you get more money. Proof of stake is the same thing. The rich get richer. 
If you have a whole bunch of ETH and you stake it, you will earn more and more ETH and basically in a risk-free or a near risk-free context. And so you just sit and pile up the, the ETH. That is really antithetical to the original ethos of crypto, which is much more democratized, much more uh, distributed, and much more decentralized. But here, when you have the, the pools of, of ETH who validate, you end up really going back to uh, an oligopolistic scenario where the members of the oligopoly are these various pools, or in some cases, whales or big ETH holders. So the, the, there's a contradiction here. It's much better for the environment, obviously, but the, the idea of proof of stake without perhaps limits on stakes uh, is an interesting one. And I don't think we've seen the last uh, or heard the last of, uh, of issues addressing the rich get richer concept behind proof of stake. The related problem to that is what's called a 51% problem. The blockchains really stop, uh, prevent uh, fraud or, or rewriting history or hiding transactions because the blockchain is immutable. And as a general rule, that's true because you have millions of copies of the blockchain. And if you change one copy, the majority of the other copies will say, no, that's wrong. And your copy will be rejected. Very, very, very simplified. But with a 51% problem, you can say, okay, I'm going to rewrite this, I'm going to change this transaction, or I'm going to take another ETH or another Bitcoin, it applies to the Bitcoin uh, blockchain as well, and change it. And if you or a small group of people, you being singular or plural, controls 51% or 50 point something percent or more of the blockchain, you can actually approve that transaction. Sometimes it's called double minting, sometimes it's called double payment. But there is a problem. Uh, now, with, with Bitcoin, before China cracked down on, on Chinese miners, you actually had a point where I believe it was four pools could combine together and they actually controlled more than 50% of, of Bitcoin. And so if they acted together and they didn't, they could actually effectively destroy the credibility of the Bitcoin blockchain. About the time they were all promising never, never, never to cooperate and do this, China cracks down on the miners, which actually from one perspective was a mistake if China should have actually encouraged a 51% problem if it was worried about Bitcoin. But nevertheless, it cracked down on the miners, the pools essentially broke up. There still are pools now, but they have nowhere near the collective percentage of BTC. So the 51% 51% problem has really receded but lo and behold, we have a potential for a 51% problem on the ETH blockchain. I don't see this as, as uh, very likely, or actually I see it as very, very, very unlikely. But there are some consequences of proof of stake that really haven't yet been addressed by the community in general because everyone's so happy and excited about the, uh, the, the transition and the amazingly successful, mind-bogglingly successful transition from proof of work to proof of stake. And with that, we're done for today. I hope you all have a wonderful week.